Should I wait to hear from you? You'll buy yours. Independently, not here. Okay, you know, he gets them cheaper, a lot cheaper. The copies you guys got were $10. Ordinarily, they, I think they're almost double that. I mean, you go ahead, but. We would have from now until January to read it. I'm going to order them now. They'll be here in a few days. Yes, get us some. Yes. Yeah, I just wanted them now. Okay. Sure, two of us. Yeah, it'd be good. Yeah, because you have all that time. Yeah. When you're not doing anything else, it's has time, right? Who has? Yes, after after today, it's there's no such thing. Yeah, yeah, right. So we each want one. Well, who's going on? Who? How, how many books should I get? Three, and you're going to down so okay, five. You started. You started, Doc. Did. Did you start already? Let's say a prayer. I feel like I'm forgetting something. Let's say a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let your peace be with us. Um, thank you for the gift of our life. There was no necessity to create us. Um, we are here as a free gift. It, um, in that one act, we, we know that to come back to you, we have to learn how to love freely, not because we get something back. How hard that is, because we always expect something for what we do. Strengthen us um, in your love that we can be with you, one with you, offer ourselves as you do. And I ask a special blessing on everybody here present as we head into Advent. Um, um, help our hearts to be glad and thankful when Thanksgiving comes and, and, to, um, and to be at peace um, and to give ourselves to waiting, actively to learn how to wait, not just having to always do something, but to learn to wait for you in preparation for Christmas. Let a blessing be on, on everybody during the holidays. Keep everybody safe. Um, and, and bring us together again after the holidays. Amen. 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 Um, Has everybody here, was everybody here when we did the, the poem, Supernatural Love? It was of the mother um, looking back at the time when she was, a, you weren't here. No. You weren't here either, huh? No. Oh, well let me read it again then. Um, one, of the, one of the women in the Friday morning class was not here and I promised to read it, even though we've already read it. It's Supernatural Love. Do you have a copy? Mm -hmm. Here, who needs a copy? Oh, raise your hand. Yeah. Oh, I have one, but you don't. Does anybody oh, need no, a copy? You do. I got it. You got it. Does everybody have a copy? Supernatural yeah. Love? Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is a poem written by a woman looking back um, at um, an event that took place when she was just a young girl. Um, 
insisting on um, identifying um, carnations as Christ's flowers. Uh, she was obviously too young to know what that meant, but like children, she made some connection between carnations and and the father is puzzled by it. Um, and she describes this moment when he goes to the dictionary puzzling over what she's doing. Um, the word carnation um, is really appropriate here because um, carnation means flesh, pinkish. It, it means flesh in body. And our word incarnation means in fleshing, in fleshing, that God in flesh. So, our, our religion is separated from all other religions because we believe that Christ was not just a prophet or a man, that in fact he was a man and God, holy one and the other, all but one. And he offered himself in atonement for sins, so the incarnation is the, the central mystery of our faith. This young child is like a child um, pressing this point. Her father seems to be a scholar a very educated man, he goes to the dictionary, but the irony here is that he seems to have no sense of what's going on. Um, and what happens in this moment, I think, I mean, the title of the poem is Supernatural Love. It's a moment when something supernatural happens to her. Does she understand it as a four-year-old? I mean, I, I myself don't have any doubts about it. There's no way she could have understood it. But this is a woman looking back at an experience she had as a child and seeing something happened that she didn't realize then. It's, in fact, what's going on in this poem is exactly what we've been doing with our literature. That all of this stuff is here, underneath the surface, that there's a deeper meaning to things once again. And all, of, all of our lyrics have been doing it. Um, and think about the, all of the allusions to Christ, the incarnation, the, the flower carnation, the flesh, the needle's eye, the pricking and the nails. Um, the French word, I think, for carnation is nail. No, clove. There's what? Clove, clove, which means nail. The association with the cross. So there are all these hidden illusions in this moment, and they seem um, to go right past the Father, that he doesn't get any of And once again, we're reminded that this is one of the things that poetry does. It helps us to go back to the world and our own experiences of the world to see things we miss, to help us feel, be aware of things that are going on immediately now that we often take for granted in our blindness. So, and um, I'm, I'm doing this really, she's not here, I'm gonna do it Friday, but I'm glad to do it again um, since you guys are here when we did it. So. Tonight, what I want to do is Canterbury Tales. After I read Supernatural Love, I'm gonna do Chaucer because I wanted you guys to hear Chaucer's language. This is the language just before Shakespeare, and this is our English language in its infancy. And you remember, one of the reasons I wanted to do the lyric poems is I wanted you to hear the music of poetry because my, my claim has been from the beginning that one of the things we get from poetry is music and music tends to help us relax the critical faculties. It's like an overture before an orchestra, before a, um, a symphony. That music helps ease our 
mind it brings something of the emotions to the experience but it also quiets the critical faculty so it's not so cutting so edgy I wanted you to hear the music early on in our in our own language because this is our English our language in its infancy so I want to read the prologue or the opening lines to Canterbury Tales the prologue for Chaucer after this supernatural love <clears throat> my father at the dictionary stand touches the page to fully understand the lamplit answer tilting in his hand his slowly scanning magnifying lens a blurry glistening circle he suspends above the word carnation think how grotesque that image is in the glass of the father in that lens then he bends so near his eyes are magnified and blurred one finger on the miniature word as if he touched a single key and heard a distant plucked infinitesimal string the obligation due to everything that's smaller than the universe I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye as through a lens grounded for a butterfly who peers down flower hallways towards a room shadowed and fathomed as the study's gloom whereas a scholar bends above a tomb to read what's buried there. He bends to pour over the Latin blossom. I am four. I spill my pins and needles on the floor trying to stitch beloved X by X. My dangerous bright needle's point connects myself illiterate to this perfect text I cannot read. My father puzzles why it is my habit to identify carnations as Christ's flowers, knowing I can give no explanation but because. Word roots blossom in speechless messages the way the thread behind my sampler does. Where following each X, I awkward move my needle through the word whose root is love. He reads a pink variety of clove. Carnatio, the Latin meaning flesh. As if the bud's essential oil brush Christ's fragrance through the room, the iron fresh odor carnations have floats up to me, a drifted secret bitter ecstasy. The stems squeak in my scissors. Child, it's me. He turns the page to clove and reads aloud. The clove, a spice dried from a flower bud. Then twice as if he hasn't understood, he reads from the French for clue, meaning a nail. He gazes motionless, meaning a nail. The incarnation blossoms, flesh and nail. I twist my threads like stems into a knot and smooth beloved, but my needle caught within the threads thy blood so dearly bought. The needle strikes my finger to the bone. I lift my hand, it is myself I've sewn, the flesh laid bare, the threads of blood my own. I lift my hand in startled agony and call upon his name, Daddy, Daddy. My father's hand touches the injury as lightly as he touched the page before, where incarnation bloomed from roots that bore the flowers I called Christ when I was four. God, mm. Think about 
um, in the middle of the first page, Shadow and Fathom in this study's bloom, or as a scholar bends above, it's almost like the father's room is a tomb. That he's completely oblivious that this whole notion of all that this means. I mean, he looks up the word and he, he, he takes the word literally, so he misses its deeper meanings. And she, looking back, is finding in this moment what I can only call a participation in the crucifixion, that this is a moment of love, whose meaning she couldn't have understood when she was four, but that she understands now. Mm. Any comments on this? Or? I think it's an extraordinary poem. It it's a beautiful poem. Who's the author? It's, right it's on the yeah. back. Um, on the back. Oh, I see. I see. That I the image, uh, two, three, four, fifth stanza. Mm -hmm. The sewing needle so close that I can watch my father through the needle's eye. Through a lens ground for a butterfly. I, I mean, there's more to that than me. Oh, all of it. We, I, I made it a practice. I don't want to, I'm reluctant. To, we could take, you know, the next 45 minutes going over there. There's so much. The, the line. Um, Watch my father through the needle's eye. Maybe because I can't even thread a needle at this age. <laughs> well, think about it. Remember, the, remember the needle, the, the Christ um, use of the, needle or the camel, camel not being able to pass through and here's her father who seems as a as a scholarly man to to be caught on the surface meanings of things and unable to see the deeper meanings of things that that line um I, my father poses why it's my habit to identify carnations as christ flowers knowing i can give no explanation but because word roots blossom in speechless messages, the way the thread behind my sampler does. Words speak, and their roots speak more deeply. If we could get to them, you were talking about Latin, and you know, I've not. I took ancient Greek. I didn't take Latin, but I know that that the root meanings of things are important for us, and we don't know them anymore. And but they point to a deeper reality, as it as is the case here. She sees it as an older woman. Um, I think we're aware that the father, my sense is that he's in, he's in danger. And something of her love for him in this poem is like an offering for him. Um, anyway, it's a, it's a beautiful poem. Um, I wanted to read it just because I told the, the woman in the other class who wasn't here that that I'd read it, but I, I wanted to check with you guys. Canterbury Tales, I wanted to read this because I want you to hear our English, Chaucer's time, this is about 1400, Shakespeare's writing 1600, it's a couple centuries later. But this is our language in its infancy. This is what it sounded like. It's a combination of Germanic, Anglo-Saxon, and um, French. What's the word I'm missing here, French? Um, um, Anyway, it's, it's the French influence that came over, the Norman, that's what it, for the Norman invasion that, that brought a real beauty and a different kind of meter to the poetic line because the English line before then was, was a Viking. It's called a, um, 
an alliterative line. Heavy accents, strong. Heavy accents. The Norman French influence brought in a more cultivated, sophisticated line. And the combination of the two of them enabled Chaucer to do what he does, and then Shakespeare to do what he will do a couple centuries down the road. So this is a this is a far cry from early Anglo-Saxon literature like Beowulf and lots of medieval poetry. A French influence has come in and, and, and um, made it possible for our language to be more subtle, to be more flexible, to capture subtleties of feeling, you know, that, that was not so true before that point. This is these are the opening lines from Chaucer's prologue to the Canterbury Tales. One in April the sweet, one in April the shores, the sweet shores fall and pierce the drought of mat to the root, and all the veins are bathed in the cool of such power and brings about the engendering of the flower. One also Zephyrus with his sweeter breath exhales an air in every grove and heath upon the tender shoots and the young sun, his half course in the sign of the rum is run. And the small fowler are making melody that sleep away the nich with open e. So nature pricks then and their heart engages, than people long to go in pilgrimages. And palmers long to seek the stranger strands of far off saints, hallowed in sundry lands, especially from every shearer's end of England down to Canterbury they wander. To seek the holy blissful martyr, quick to give his help to them, and there they were sick. It happened in that season that one day in Southwark, at the Talbot, is he lay, ready to go on pilgrimage and start for Canterbury, most devout at heart. At Nick there came into that hostelry, so nean and twenty in a company of sundry folks happening then to fall in fellowship, and they were pilgrims all, that toward Canterbury meant to ride. The rooms and stables of the inn were wide, they made us easy, all was of the best, and briefly when the sun had gone to rest, and spoken to them all upon the trip, and was soon one with them in fellowship, pledged to rise early and take the way to Canterbury, as you heard me say. I've got the wrong tabulation here, and I'm really sorry. This should have been in, in Middle English, and it's not. I've got to redo this. The, the poem on the next, on the opposite, is Chaucer's gentleness. And by gentleness, he means not the manners that are cultivated in a class, but the gentleness that goes back to Christ, the original stoke, the origins of, as you'll see from the word, the stoke. The, the father of gentleness. The fair stoke father of gentilessa, what man that claimeth gentle for to be, must follow his trace in all his wit is dresser, virtue to sue in visas for to flee, for unto virtue longeth dignity, and noch the reverse, softly dare he deeme, all where he mitre, crone, or diademe. This first stoke, this Christ, the origins of the stock, was full of riches nusse, true of his wear, sober, piteous, and free, 
cleaner of his ghost and loved busyness, against the vis of sluthe in honesty, on but his hera love vertu, as did he. He is noch gentil, though he rich seeme, all where he mitre, cron, or diademe. Thisa may well be heir to old richessa, but there me no man, as men may well see, bequeatha his hera, his virtuous noblesse, that is appropriate unto no degree, but to the fairest fadder in majesty that maketh him his era, that can him quema, all were his meter, crun, or diadema, even if he wore mitre, crown, or diadem. It's sort of a, it's, a, it's an affirmation of the natural goodness in man as over against those um, social qualities that are cultivated, crown, mitre, diadem. Anyway, that's, I, I've got, I'm going to do this again when we meet with Virgil because I want to get the original English. Um, this is not for some, I think this is a translation of the, just so you can see. But Chaucer's English sounded something like that. It was, what's, I thought the Iliad was hard to read. <laughs> <laughs> I just want you to hear it. I just want you to hear it. Um, it's just for the sound. You don't have to read it. Oh, good. What I want you to hear was, Hondarat April Hishura's suit, the Persita Drot, the Marsh. I mean, it's just that, it's that beautiful medieval. So you can hear that what the poets are working with is music. All of them. They all have been doing that. Every poem we've read, every lyric. It sings a, a softer language. Yes. It's smooth. Yeah. But it's also a little bit more guttural. It's got a, a ger Germanic. German, yeah. Yeah, but the, but the Norman influence is there. It is a much smoother language, for sure. For sure. Okay, let's, let's start. Let's start. Last week, just very, very quickly, we talked about the differences between the masculine and feminine archetypes that Odysseus was um, on his way home and that what Homer is showing us is that before he can get home, um, he has to go through a period of reflection um, in, in which he comes to learn the sources of things, what you, we have to call the metaphysical, ontological nature of things, their origins, their roots, their forms. So every one of the adventures at sea, all of them, give us images of invisible reality, visible images of invisible realities. So that when he went home, if he was going to bring order to home, he was going to have to learn to deal with those things because staying on the surface of things is not going to do it, as we all know. I mean, we, particularly at this age. I mean, all of us have lived too long not to know that when we look back, uh, I mean, I, Suzanne and I, I know are super conscious of the mistakes we made, you know, raising our kids and and when we have our grandchildren now, we're, it's like we're different people that we can bring things to them we could have never brought 25 years ago. That as we age, we, we learn to see things so differently. We're, our understanding is deeper. We feel things more deeply. We see more deeper, deep, more deeply. That's all that we learn here. And particularly in the land of the dead, in, in his encounters with the men and the women, when he comes home, he's asleep 
When the Fayakians drop him off, this is where we were, I think, last time. When, when they drop him off, they drop him off with all this wealth, and he's asleep, um, which signifies, I think, that he's just left a world of the unconscious and is now ready to come home. You know, I mean, I want to underline that. When Dante, when Dante goes down into the inferno in the beginning of the, uh, the Commedia, he's unconscious. But um, to enter into the unconscious is to, is to enter in that, that dimension of our spiritual life of which we're not conscious. We don't see it very well. It's dark. The poet is the one who threw a line on it. Yeah? I mean, so we could begin to, and in, in amazingly teaching ways. You know, so is that why Virgil has to be his leader? I mean, into the... Uh, in the divine comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Comedy. What are you saying, Tom? I'm not, because he, he's the poet, and he... He has the words, and 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 yes, he yes, articulates what is unseen. Like he he's 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 the one that Dante chooses over Homer, because I think he thinks Virgil is a superior poet to Homer, and, and we won't see that until after the Aeneid. Why? So I can't. I'm not going to okay, comment on okay. that. But but yes, you're absolutely right in that. That that the poet is the one who more completely understands the natural order so that we can learn to see it in order to go on to the more difficult things of faith. The whole world of the Logos, then the infernal world of it, the, or the purgatorial, both of those worlds. Virgil's the one who takes Dante two-thirds of the way through his journey. We've, um, we've seen schematically what the journeys mean. That from, if we looked at it from the perspective of the adventures, we see the Cyclops and Phaeacians in some ways are correlated. They are opposite faces of the same thing. The Cyclops are brutal. They have no technology. They have one eye. They see things on one level. We talked about this, right? Yes. yes. The Phaeacians are, I think, Homer's vision of what today we would call a suburban world, that where people um, try to escape violence. The, War. There's no war. They've never heard of it. They don't deal with bows and arrows. It's an artistic, philosophic, um, artful city. So it's the contrast of this. And there's something wrong with both of them. They're both extremes because neither one of them deals with what Homer's showing us is this norm, what Odysseus is. And both of them suffer from their experiences with Odysseus, right? The Cyclops is blinded. The Phaeacians have the, mount, the mountain piled on their ship. There's something wrong with both of them. The, the Phaeacians have so learned to master nature, like us, with technology, that they live with a sense of mastery. And you know, in the Greek world, if you master nature, the hubris involved in that, because what you're really presuming is to, to master the gods. Like, you don't have to be afraid. You can do whatever you want. The Cyclops master. They, they take everything for granted. They don't do anything. They just eat. And, um, um, from another perspective, Ithaca's at the center. It is the norm. Homer's showing us what can be in a marriage and, the, and the, the ordeals and struggles that a husband and wife go through in order to realize that, that kind of happiness. And we'll come to that in a minute. Um, what we're seeing is what we could call the enculturation that's peculiar to each city, each world. 
Cyclops grew up with Cyclops, Viacans is, we grew up in America, enculturated to certain beliefs. Um, let me put this as starkly as I can. Um, the, the Islamic people in Syria grew up enculturated to certain beliefs. And there's obvious, I'm putting that out there because there's obviously um, radical contradictions and oppositions in the beliefs that are the foundations of those two worlds. And the question of their truthfulness or whether they're in accord with nature is a serious issue today. I hope that was clear. Remember the image I gave you of it was Plato's cave where there are these people who, who bear books and they cast shadows and everybody thinks this is reality, the shadows or the image of the appearances. And Plato's concern was um, it will only be when somebody comes out, that is, when somebody has a transcendent view of the world who can come back to show the people here who are trapped that what they take as reality is not in fact reality at all. But nobody can do that without a transcendent view the light, or the word, or the logos. Islam is Allah, the prophet Muhammad brought that transcendent. Christianity, through Judaism, the prophets, and ultimately Christ. And so what Homer's doing is exploring the, the natural order, but he's doing it, it seems to me, as, I, as I've learned to read the Odyssey, with a sense that there is something like, the, like Achilles and the Iliad that man can come to if he will learn from the natural order. And that's what Odysseus is bringing home. That's where we were, okay? And what I'd like to do tonight um, is get us here because um, I'd like to suggest some of the ways in which, in which Odysseus, like Achilles, prefigures Christ and the parousia, the return of the king. Because remember, it's when Achilles re-enters the war that this psychomachia, this great dislocation in nature takes place. Remember, the, the graves of the dead open, the ghastly figures, the gods went to war. It was a way of showing that when any of us makes a choice to accept death, it will radically change what we do in everything we do in the world. And when we do, it's as if this shattering takes place. It's a difficult moment, it's a crisis, and all the battles that follow, are, in a sense, are reflections of that moment in the, in the Iliad, and, and all the reversals that follow from it. We've gone through all of that. Same thing here, that all of the disorders that we've been experiencing are all gonna come right. The king will return. The same thing will happen in Virgil. Aeneas, at late in the book, will return, and when he does, all the disorders that are threatening to engulf the Italian peninsula with all the civil wars will come right. So in some sense, every one of them, in some amazing way, is prefiguring the Prussia, the return of the king. This, this kind of apocalyptic moment will come, and all the grieving and suffering will be righted, but it will happen through somebody who has a divinely appointed task. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. In this case, it's Odysseus. He's bringing, he's bringing home all that he's learned here at sea. These archetypes, these underlying realities. Okay, we together? I mean, this is pretty much, okay. 
what I want to do is just briefly summarize um, the, um, the last few books very briefly because I, um, I know that um, this is a lot of reading for you all that you, 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 um, you don't read like students anymore and this is a lot so let me just briefly go through this. Um, on page 205, I just want to quickly go through, this is summary stuff, just to get us ready for the conclusion. Page 205. Remember, this is shortly after that passage I left us off with last time where Alkinus is um, recalling the prophecy and now it's come to pass that he was told that Poseidon would be angry at them and stun them and put them out and it's just happened. And they, their response to that is at the top of 205, um, or wait, sorry, just before that, sorry, I'm back at 205. His response to that was, let us pray and make sacrifices to Poseidon. And remember what happened with Cyclops when he lost his eye, um, the other gods, the other Cyclops said, um, uh, give a sacrifice to Poseidon. So in both instances, both peoples are encouraged to correct themselves and be more careful of the divine. Because they've both been presumptuous from both extremes. Odysseus is now at home, bottom of 204, um, asleep, and now he's awake. So that whole irrational world at sea, that world um, from which Athena has been absent, is now behind him. Now he's home. Whatever that means, on a literal level it means he's home. I've got to come to you, because the big question for me tonight that I want to leave with you guys, or spend a minute with when we're through with is, why a hundred suitors? Who are these suitors? And they're clearly images of something Cyclopean, but why a hundred? Clearly, Homer's got something in mind here. Why a hundred suitors? But here, um, that world is behind him. He's now home, and he's going to have to face the disorders at home. I heard the name of Ithaca when I was in Wide Crete, far away across the sea. Now I myself have come here with these goods that you see. But leaving as much again to my children, I have fled in exile because I killed the son of Idomeneus, or Oriskelos, a man swift of foot who wide in Crete surpassed all other mortal men for speed of his feet. I killed him because he tried to deprive me of all my share and plunder. Athena's in disguise. Athena, or I mean, Odysseus has just lied to her, said he's a thief. Um, he, um, he killed a man who was known to be faster than anybody else in his area because this guy tried to steal his stuff. Athena down below says, or it says of her, the goddess great Athena smiled at him and stroked him with her hand and took on the shape of a woman, both beautiful and tall. It would be a sharp one and a stealthy one who would ever get past you in any contriving, even if it were a god against you. Why does he lie and why does she praise him? We tell our children, don't lie. This is why, the goddess of wisdom. Well, he's, he's very clever about this, to deceive her. But why? I'm not sure why. That's why? Right. Okay. Is that a feminine skill he's learning? 
I think it is, but but Lee, what's, why does he do this? Are, are you saying that women are by nature cunning and deceiving in life? That's what he's saying. What do people, if we look at the Iliad, what is one of the primal motives for almost everything everybody does? Odysseus has got all this loot. He wakes up. At first, I'm not sure that he knows where he is, but he wakes up and he finds this figure here. He doesn't know it's her. Mm -mm. That's why he's Why lying. does he lie? And why does he say, I killed a man who was really fast? He wants to look superior? I mean, um, no. Big ego. If that person sees his loot, and then he's saying, I've already killed somebody for this, and so don't bother me. This is my stuff. Right. Isn't that clear? I mean, if you face, I sometimes think about that. If you were out on the street and somebody came up to attack you, I wonder if anybody would have the wherewithal to say, to pretend for a moment that there was help. Or, you know, he's lying to warn this person off, to let this person know how fast he is. And being fast won't be enough, that he's already killed somebody. That is, it's a, it's a way of showing he's not innocent of evil. He deals with evil all the time. He's in a world with evil. We saw it in the, the, the Iliad is about people who just plunder everywhere for booty. The suitors are taking over. I mean, so, and over and over again, we keep getting these backstories. When we get to Eumaeus, he, he will be treated treacherously by people that, in this world, people abuse other people. They steal, they cheat, they lie. Odysseus is putting this person on guard, and he doesn't know that it's Athena, and she praises him for that reason, that he's not pretending that the world is good and being innocent about it. I was going to say, he gave up his naivete. You know, if he, he had any in the... Yeah, what, what, yeah he's giving right. going through what he's going through, right. waking up. To, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Mm. Um, he goes to Eumaeus, um, the swine herd, um, who has been watching his, his pigs, and, um, and Eumaeus is skeptical, but he gives Odysseus, interestingly, a place to sleep for that night, and he himself sleeps outside. Or let's Odysseus sleep inside. Or, um, in book 15, this is the one, remember, where I read that passage. Um, Athena goes to Telemachus on uh, page 225 to get him to return home. And this is where Athena makes this comment about the fact that women, um, wives, don't remember their husbands at the bottom of 225. Um, it's here, too, interestingly, that um, Helen gives, as Telemachus leaves, she gives a portent and tells him that Odysseus will return. It's one more reminder that all around Telemachus he's being encouraged to be positive, even though it's hard for him to do that. Um, he encounters this fugitive, Theoclymenos, on page 230, 232. Um, Theoclymenos is, is also a fugitive, a killer, in fact. And Telemachus will give him passage home. On page 234, we get the backstory of Eumaeus. Um, um, just these lines, we see it in the middle middle of um, 234, 
There is nothing worse for mortal men than the vagrant life, but still for the sake of the cursed stomach. Almost, I mean, almost every other page in this section has the ravenous belly or the cursed stomach. Or It's here we learn that um, Eumaeus was the son of a king. He was destined for royalty. He, he's the keeper of pigs right now. On page 236, now in my father's house there was a Phoenician woman, both beautiful and tall and skilled and glorious handiwork. And yet these Phoenicians, subtle men in their talk, beguiled her. They, he sold off, and then he's betrayed by a nurse um, with all the booty. People steal. How, how uncommon is that in our world? God. Anyway, why does Homer do this? I think it's to show the role of chance in the world. The, the um, stately power is not given or assured that it can be lost. Um, we've seen suitors ravaging Odysseus's home for um, lots of years. And here in this instance, we have a story of a young boy who was heir to his father's throne who loses it and never went back. I think it's also an image of humility, that he loves Odysseus. Um, and Odysseus is a virtuous man, and there is some good in having humility to see that there may be a greater good in serving somebody than being a king, um, because he's remained faithful all of his life. Book 16, um, Telemachus comes home, and Odysseus reveals himself. Um, Um, this is the first time in 20 years that father and son meet. It's a touching chapter. Um, both of them um, are noble-looking. Um, remember, Telemachus has been skeptical about his father's being alive, so to see him is an, obviously an important moment. The two make plans on, um, on regaining control of the house. In book 17, Odysseus and Telemachus um, depart for home. Telemachus goes to find his mother, and Odysseus and Eumaeus um, go home. And on, let me find this, on um, page 260, interesting, um, as they approach the house, um, Homer describes the the episode this way, and look at page 260, the middle of the page. Then, O swineherd Eumaeus, I don't know how attentive you've been in your reading, but in this chapter alone, Homer must do this a dozen times. Remember, the, the, the epic begins invoking the goddess. She's the one who sings. Repeatedly, Homer keeps saying, then, O swineherd Eumaeus. It's called an apostrophe, an direct address. He's addressing this swineherd with obviously deeply felt affection. So it, it's some measure of, of how the human heart has entered into this divine story. <coughs> and I think it's because, I'm not sure, my sense of this is because it, um, Eumaeus is particularly notable because of his humility, his fidelity as a man. He served Odysseus as taking care of pigs when he could have been a king. 
Why else would Homer keep saying, oh, then, O oh swine, he does that repeatedly through this chapter again and again. Look down below 285. Even so, there's no suppressing the ravenous belly. It just doesn't stop. At the top of 261, there the dog Argos lay in the dung all covered with dogs. Now, they approach, Odysseus comes up. Nobody recognizes him. Nobody except his dog. There the dog Argos lay in the dung all covered with dog ticks. Now, as you perceive that Odysseus had come close to him, he wagged his tail and laid both his ears back, only he now no longer had the strength to move any closer to his master, who, watching him from a distance without Eumaeus noticing, secretly wiped a tear away and said to him, Eumaeus, this is amazing, this dog that lies on the dunghill, the shape of him is splendid, the dog dies. Think, consider this for a moment. Nobody recognizes the king who recognized Christ. Nobody recognized the king returning except the dog. Remember we talked about the, how the subhuman world participated in that turn at the end of it, that um, Xanthos, Achilles' horse, prophesized his death. So Homer is, I think, suggesting that humans let their minds get in the way. They blind, they, they, they prevent them from seeing. Nobody recognizes Odysseus here. The suitors are going to attack him. This is the master of the house. He's going to have on a, a disguise. So he's partly inviting it because he is, he's in disguise. But I think there's something more going on here. Um, there's, there's something about the fidelity of a dog. Mm. Dogs have this innate natural loyalty mm. as animals that humans often lack. You know, he's so, he's so faithful to And it's also as if he'd been waiting for his master to return. So it just gives another dimension to this, the return of the king, that the whole natural order is on, on wait. It's, it's waiting for this moment. Odysseus returns, the dog dies. Um, in book 18, Iros, a local beggar, comes and he challenges Odysseus, who presents himself as a beggar, to fight for begging rights. Odysseus thrashes him and his defeat of the beggar brings on the wrath of the suitors. They throw a stool at him and abuse him, and um, they, they have to leave, finally. Um, um, book 19 opens with um, Odysseus and Telemachus preparing for the fight. They get rid of the armor, and um, Odysseus will go up and actually see Penelope, and she won't recognize him. And once again, it's a servant. It's the lower class. You're a Clia, his servant, on, on page um, page 292. Take a look at that. Um, Penelope and Odysseus talk. She doesn't know that this is her husband. What does that I mean? The significance of that, that we could spend a half an hour, I really believe spend a significant hour on that. She doesn't recognize her husband. The bottom of the page, she tells Eurycleia, the maidservant, to wash this guest's feet. The guest has been courteous and caring. He, he assures her that Odysseus is on the way home. She's going to ask him to interpret a dream that she has about the geese, and he's, he, he says that's a forewarning of the destruction that's about to come to the suitors, so he's partly given it away, and she still doesn't see him. But here, when Eurycleia washes 
her master's feet. She hasn't recognized him, but she starts to wash him, and then she sees the scar that she remembers from him as a boy. Bottom of page 292. Um, the grandfather was invited to come visit the family when Odysseus was born, and it, it describes, the, this is the backstory of Autolycus, the, the grandfather, who was a liar and a thief, and um, he comes into this country, um, bottom of the page, Antolikos, now find yourself that name you will bestow on your own child's dear child, your grandchild. For you have prayed much to have him. Then Atkalitas spoke to her and gave her an answer. My son-in-law and daughter, give him the name I tell you, since I have come to this place distasteful to many. Ithaca, a place distasteful to many. Um, to many men and women alike on the prospering earth. Everywhere else the earth prosper. This is a awful place. So let him be given the name Odysseus. That is distasteful. We've talked about this in you know, my last talk. Remember I gave you all these puns. Odyssey and the punning in the cave, remember. Odysseus names, is named distasteful. Wherever he goes, he brings pain. And let me just throw this out because I just I can't lose these moments. I would say from my own experiences and, I, and from what I know of saints and leaders of orders, that living with a virtuous person is usually hell for the person living <laughs> with them. That most of the time when we're good, it makes for difficulties around us because most of us get comfortable with disorders and want to, you know, we, what do they call it? Depend, what's that word that depend, what's that? What's that psychological term? Codependence. Oh, you know, where you, where you learn to develop these dynamisms around our disorders, and when somebody changes, it throws everything off. But his name is Detasteful. Remember that, I, that I, it seems to me what Homer's showing us once again is the inner workings of this logos everywhere in nature. It's pre God is present in nature. It's everywhere here. It isn't for the fundamentalist, Christian. It isn't for the fundamentalist, Islam. It is for a Catholic. We are rooted in nature. God is there all around us. And it, it means that if we're attentive to things, we can grow into ourselves. We can become better, whoever we've been given to be. Easy? Look at the Odyssey. It's an odyssey. It is a struggle, and it's full of pain. Um, so right at the center of this book is this distasteful hero. Um, but can it mean, I mean, I think it also means uh, a kind of, uh, it, it, if, you're, if consciousness is going to change, it's going to be painful. Say again, Tom. If, if, if you cannot help somebody become conscious, oh. the word very often is nausea. They will experience a certain nausea coming to self-consciousness. Yeah. And... Uh, that's very much to the meaning we gave suffering, to bear up, to bear up to, under. because of, you, we have a new birth in consciousness, that we're a new person, but it's painful. It's like we're born again, um, different. The spiritual reality becomes a part of who we are. Yes? So are you saying that a rose is not a rose here then? <laughs> There's always one in a class. <laughs> he is definitely it. <laughs> Um, quick go on over, I just have to do this, um, page 300, 
This is after he leaves Penelope. I'm going to stop in a few minutes, and I want to read. So something. they both they, they don't he, they don't recognize. I mean, she he recognizes her. He knows. She, yeah, she does. Yeah, but she doesn't no, get it. No. Bottom of three hundred. This is the night Odysseus has not been able to sleep, and he calls to mind the the, the experience in the cave. Um, the bottom of page 300 Father Zeus of willing you gods let me over wet and dry to my land after giving too much affliction let one of the waking people send me an omen from inside earlier he, I think it was the very beginning of the chapter yeah, on page 298 he struck himself in the chest and spoke to his heart and scolded it bear up my heart you have had worse to endure before this on the day when the irresistible cyclops ate up that is he's facing the cyclops multiplied a hundredfold in some sense, you know, what he's about to. So here he asks for a sign from Zeus. So he spoke in prayer and Zeus of the councils heard him. Immediately he sent up his thunder, this is top of 301, from shining Olympus high above the clouds and from the house a mill woman sent him an omen. She was nearby. Um, she was the one who grinds the wheat, bending to grind the wheat and the barley flour, men's marrow. The others, since they'd finished grinding their wheat by now, were sleeping, but this one had not ended her work. She was the weakest. She stopped the mill and spoke aloud, a sign for her master. This is called taking the auspices, taking a taking of the auspices. It's so, everywhere in literature, in Christian literature, it's here. A taking of the auspices. A sign is given, but it has to be confirmed because how do we know that it's real? It might be an illusion. Lots of people say they see apparitions or gods or they got a message from God. How do we know that it's real? The church is very guarded about these things. You know, it, it, it takes pains, very slow, because the consequences of ignoring it could be really great. It's called a taking of the auspices. Odysseus asks for a sign. Zeus thunders, and then immediately the millwoman speaks. But this one had not ended her work, and she was the weakest. She stopped the mill and spoke aloud a sign for her master. Father Zeus, you who are lord of the gods and people, now you have thundered aloud from the starry sky, although there is no cloud. You show this forth a portent for someone. Grant now also, for wretched me, this prayer that I make you on this day, let the suitors take for the last and latest time their desirable feasting in the halls of Odysseus. For it is they who have broken my knees with heart sore labor as I grind the meal for them. Let this be their final feasting. This break, I mentioned this before, the breaking down. They grind people up. The freeloaders who, who crush other people because they don't help so they can be fed. Um, um, uh, Penelope had suggested the bow contest um, to decide who the husband would be. She gets the bow, and then on page 312, the suitors are eager to take advantage of this because it means finally they can resolve this problem of marrying Penelope. The suitors try and can't string the bow only a king. It's like the King Arthur sword. You know, there's oh, people are called. They're, some are chosen. Whatever the mystery behind that. Three times he made it vibrate, straining to bend it, and this is bottom of 312. 
Three times he gave over the effort, yet in his heart was hopeful at looking at the string to the bow and sending a shaft through the iron. He wanted to do this. This is Telemachus. Now pulling the bow for the fourth time, he would have strung it, but Odysseus stopped him, though he was eager, making a signal. He will string the bow, and the first thing we'll do is shoot who? If you're a good leader, who would be the first person you'd take out? What's his name? Don't look. Antinous. And Eurymachus was the other. Remember, those are the first two people to go. How, how important, right? Take out the leaders and it will weaken everybody else. But it's important to see this scene because, and it'll be really important when we see what Virgil does. Virgil will take every one of these important scenes. Radically changing what he does with his is amazing. How do you pronounce the guy that got killed? Antinous is that what Antinous. 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 Antino. Anti law. Noose. Anti reason. Yeah, well, he was the really bad guy. Yeah. He was the leader. Um, what does he say? Um, this is Telemachus's coming of age. It's really important to see this. He struggled and struggled and struggled, and finally he was going to do it. So we know he could have done it. He is the heir. He's the one who would step in, and he will help his father in this fight. So the whole book has been preparing Telemachus for this moment as his son. Um, but he's grown up to that point to, ma to match his father, to be there with his father. Yeah. But his father stops him, so it's not a revelation. I think he stops him. No, I think he stops him because... He has to take command at this point because to string that bow will begin the battle. He wants to take out it. My own sense is that he does it to because he's got to take charge right. here um, okay. to lead. He's the, he's the king, king returning and he's got to deal with his evil. The battle begins. He takes out all the suitors. I, I want to just quickly um, um, pass over some things here. He defeats all the suitors. Um, after the battle is over, Odysseus only spares a few people, and, and it's interesting that he spares the, uh, the bard, Phemios, the singer, you know, the, remember, the, the Homer figure, uh, and another, another person too. Um, um, and he will execute all the maidservants. Some people look at, at this as brutal. The maidservants, the women have been trained, betraying, they've been sleeping with the suitors this whole time. They, they lied. They're the ones who gave Penelope up when she was using the trick, to, you know, to delay them with her right. weaving of the. So they betrayed her, even though we don't see them. They're among the women that, you know, that that we we get hints of in these archetypes. The things to, that home that Odysseus has got to learn to be aware of if he's going to come home in any true sense. After the battle is over, he comes to his wife. Um, I have to say this, I wish I had given more time to this, there's just too much to cover here in, in um, the time that we have, but in one sense, the, uh, the Odyssey is an answer to the Iliad and the whole heroic code. This is the most anti-romantic book probably ever written, and it's the beginning of our tradition. Um, it's anti-romantic in one sense because all of the virtues that are, up, that are upheld in the Iliad are, are not here. They are at the end because he, he becomes a warrior again, but it's only after he has had to learn restraint, disguise, deception, caution, reflection, 
to penetrate things. Um, you can call them feminine virtues. I mean, she, Athena, once again, is, 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 is his mentor, like Achilles. I, I, will, I will speak to that a little bit more. But here it seems to me this is the, the, this is the ultimate moment, the, the anti-romantic moment of the book. He comes to his wife after defeating a hundred suitors. He's performed this great heroic deed. He is the conquering hero, expecting his wife to open her arms and embrace him. And he comes to his wife and she, puts, she puts him down. He's just crushed. Um, on the bottom of three thirty-eight, what? You say <laughs> she wants to see that mark. She is. She. She's cunning. She has to know it's him. So there's the same wisdom in her that we've seen Odysseus has come to, that he's got to be careful of people. Because we've seen all these people are treacherous. Cladamnasteros, you know, the maidservants are treacherous. Everywhere you go, you find treachery. So for a man or a woman to, to not be on guard against those is a sign of how foolish they are. How many years she's had to be on guard. All right. All these years. Yes. And, and so she can't learning. just drop that immediately. Right, right. Well, essentially, they both have their own journeys and bring them to an equal level of consciousness, as it were. Yes, yes. At the end. I, and they, yes. So they met, see, I, I would never think that Homer would put that much credit in a woman. But he does with Penelope. But he does with yeah. Penelope. On um, at the bottom of um, 338, he has presented himself as this conquering hero. <laughs> she has nothing to do with him. Page 339. Um, he calls her a cold woman. The bottom of page 339, circumspect. Notice the word circumspect, Penelope. Said to him in answer, you are so strange. I'm not being proud nor indifferent, but I know very well what you look like. Come then, your client. Make up a firm bed for him outside the well-fashioned chamber that very bed he himself made. Put the firm bed here outside for him and cover it. Well, Odysseus gets outraged when she says that because, as he will say, top of 340, there's one particular feature in the bed's construction. I myself, no other man made it. Did his wife sexually betray him? There was the bowl of an olive tree. She knows exactly what she's doing. When she says to your client, make up the bed out there, he's outraged. And because he is, he gives himself away. The bottom of 340. Um, do not be angry with me, Odysseus, since beyond other men you have the most understanding. The gods granted us misery and jealousy. And do not be angry with me now or blame me because I did. She says, um, for there are many who scheme for wicked advantage. People deceive. She had, to, she had to test him. So it's at this moment that the two are, after she tests him, that the two are finally reunited after 20 years. And I think we're, we're meant to imagine how, how much of a struggle that was for both of them. Now turn to oh, this. I've got to be careful with time here. That's the young girl. I know, Doc. Well, I know. Doc, I know. Um, Doc, wait one. Give it, give it a minute, would you? Just give it a minute. Wait, would you? A minute. Um, turn to page 341 and we'll, I want to close with two things here. We've been talking about how the novel um, um, 
situates itself in the present, and the epic always situates itself in the past. And we've seen over and over again how often people live in the past, the wounds and, and the disorders that that's encouraged everywhere, everywhere. Um, and I argued, I think faithfully to the Iliad, that Iliad comes out of that past in something entirely new and the cost of it for him when he makes that choice. Here, remember all of the couples we've seen, Menelaus, Helen, Nestor, his wife, um, the other marriages in Phaeacia. Um, on page 341, after the, the suitors have been defeated, Penelope and Odysseus finally come together, and I'm gonna argue that they, what makes this possible is that they see each other not as objects, which is so often the way other couples see each other as objects, but as persons, each with his or her own story. And to what you were speaking to Tom here, middle of the page 341. Now dawn of the rosy fingers would have dawned on their weeping had not the gray-eyed goddess Athena planned it otherwise. She held the long night back at the outward edge. She detained dawn on the golden throne by the ocean and would not let her harness her fast-footed horses who bring the daylight to people. She delays time. So for a moment, husband and wife come together in what we have to see as a timeless moment. It's not rooted in the past. They're not looking ahead. They are in this present moment. It's timeless, outside of time. So like Achilles, Odysseus has shattered that epic world and brought a, a new understanding of what marriage is in, into the West. I think that's Homer's contribution. Now one more thing, to, um, and I'm arguing that only poetry has given us this. But how, what, does, what, does, what does Odysseus bring home as a hero? It's going to take just 30 seconds. Um, he's had to deal with all these feminine figures, and I don't want to under, underestimate any of them because there's a danger everywhere. Calypso with her possessiveness, Circe with her possessiveness, the Lestrigonese queen with the influence in a culture around her, the sirens, skill in Charybdis, the mates, I mean, we, we've seen it everywhere. Um, the sexual attraction of Circe, Calypso, the possessive, the seductions of his spiritual immortal love, the sirens, all of it. Um, Nasika, feminine promise, youth, beauty, graciousness, all that women promised to be when finally loved. How are they present in Penelope? Because I'm going to argue they are. If Odysseus doesn't learn to see this in the woman he loves, I don't think he'd be able to love her well. Penelope is the epitome of the feminine. She has contained in here all of the disorders mentioned above two disordered men, men whose lusts give women inordinate powers. I think this is the central, I mean, one of the most amazing things that Homer's given us. Let me read that again. If you take all these qualities in the feminine archetypes we've seen, including Nausicaa, um, youth, beauty, graciousness, all that women... And, and by the way, I don't think anybody can see this if they don't acknowledge that beauty is transcendent in its nature. And that's a peculiar characteristic of women. That's why men are so... If, if men and women are left to themselves, 
I'm going to say, if men and women are left to themselves without a pope, like the Protestant world or the Islam, if men and women are left to themselves, there's no way a man can stand with a woman. The power is too great. You guys can yeah. run me out of town on that one, but I, what I'm saying is that there, there is something transcendent going on in the sexual relationship that we have to learn to see is there. And part of it in the feminine side is, is the, the power that beauty has in a relationship with a man. And we've seen it again and again and again in various ways. Penelope is the epitome of the feminine. She has contained in her all of the feminine disorders mentioned above to disordered men, men whose lusts give women inordinate powers. And here's what I'm saying. They are present in conspicuous ways in Clytemnestra, Helen, the maidservants. To the suitors, as an image of feminine beauty and sexuality, Penelope is an overpowering temptation. They've been surrounding her for ages, tearing the house apart. Why? Because she has no power over them? She is, I don't know what you call it, temptation, inordinately multiplied. Penelope is an overpowering temptation, an object to be used to gratify their lust as well as their cravings for power. She's an object. The sirens, what's the attraction? The, the siren island is surrounded by skulls of dead men. Mm. To them, here's the point, to them as lawless men, and this is the center of this, to them as lawless men, she is death. They're all dead. To Odysseus, the virtuous man who has learned restraint, she is beautiful, faithful, pious, modest, wise, clever, respectful, and loved. Insofar as Homer's world is about the heroic quest of a male, Achilles, Odysseus, what we're learning in this epic about marriage is that it's only when a man becomes lawful will he ever come out from underneath the power that a woman holds over him. To Odysseus, the virtuous man who has learned restraint, to put himself away, to deny himself, to reflect on things, she is beautiful, faithful, pious, modest, wise, clever, respected, and loved. She is a trial to him for 20 years, helper, temptress, goal. She is the goal. This is what woman is for a man. Temptress. I've got to under, I wish there were more men and women right here. She is temptress, helper, goal. That's what women are to, for man to come. She is finally fulfillment at the end when he becomes virtuous. When a man becomes lawful, a marriage, insofar as it, it rests with him, the marriage can become complete. Let me stop there. I have more to say here, but my wife is scowling at me. <laughs> Wait, let me take any questions, because I, I don't, this is... You didn't tell us about the hundred. Well, let me ask you, what do you, what do you make, it's a hundred suitors, what is that? I just don't know. Is that like the perfect number? It's, it's, it's a perfect multiplied number. I mean, in some sense, it's, it's allegorical because it's too rounded and too large, too overpowering, and it clearly represents more than just 100 men, you know. But is he exaggerating that, uh, that negativity or the power or the lust of these men and the power of these men? He's just amplifying that. By using that number. That's my sense of it, Tom. 
at, as something Odysseus has got to face in himself or any man before he can before he can come to the relationship that's possible between a man and a woman, to put it that way. But it's overcome by someone who is virtuous. Right. There's no other way. I mean, could, Even and though it's powerful, he's learned overcome. all this and all of those, all so, of the. So, um, so what do I want to say? A good will overcome evil. Yeah, and remember the jury. I mean, insofar this is about the masculine ideal in an epic, it's not. It's not an epic about. Secondarily, about Penelope, that none of this would happen if she weren't faithful. If she didn't do what she did in all these years, the ordeal that she has to struggle with too. But so. she is a kind of, uh, I don't know, inspirational, or she draws him to his better self. He, if he's going to get back to her, she's waiting. It's almost like uh, he knows that in some part of himself that he has to get back to her. It's essential. He's weeping on Calypso's Island. He wants to get home. She, that's why I said she is temptress and goal. She's helper. I think what Homer's showing us is that women are helpers, temptresses, goals. And it's only, I mean, insofar as we're looking at Odysseus here, if this is normative, that, that this is what a man faces, and it's only when he comes to be lawful or virtuous, when he learns to... When he, when he, Plato's line, and I've been throwing this out again, if you picture the soul, Plato's argument, it, it's so clear he got it from Homer. The poet had it, not the philosopher. The, the ordeal facing every man is to order his own soul, to mind his own business, to become good himself. Whatever he's facing outside of him, he's got to mind his own business. He's got to become good. It's only when Odysseus, his coming to this point, is an, this is another way of putting it, his coming to this point is an indication that he's become completed in his virtue. And it makes it possible this moment for him and his wife to come together in a way that we haven't seen in these other marriages. A woman is a temperess because that's the way God made her because she produces the child and she's got to tempt the man and because that's that will be the end result. And I also think it's because of her beauty that there, if we look at Calypso, remember she's a, he's there eight years and, and she offers immortality that we're meant to see that there's a transcendent spiritual, she's not Circe. She images the perfection in beauty as a, as a transcendent thing. But otherwise, what is Calypso? You know, she's by the navel of the sea, the umbilical cord to the divine and the sea. Everything is mysterious. There's so much arch archetypally going on in yes. the poetry here yeah. that is about male and female. That's evil men see women as objects, and honest men see women as a person. persons. Yes, persons. I think that's um, yeah. But it's another way of saying it is, is that, but a lot of men don't have the maturing process to get to what you're saying. This this is almost like. You should be teaching pre-marriage courses. You know, I, 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 I told you, I, I really want, I want, I want to get the kids in this marriage because it saddens me when I think about when I think about what kids are getting in, what kids are getting in school today. You know, it, it's, I mean, kids should be learning this stuff not as classics 
or great books because there is such an extraordinary wisdom that could help them become better people as they grow. Do you have study guides for the Aeneid yet? No. I'll tell you what I'll do. I do. I'll, I'll, I'll